I can't come here and die. I can't come here and lose. Got all this shit on my mind. Like, what the fuck I'm a day? Work ain't paid me in time. My baby just ripped me my mood. Her too just cut off my line. Hi, guys. Welcome to the Echo Chamber. I'm Jay. And I'm Ez. And today we're joined by a special guest. So, we have been a guest on her podcast last month. And we connected like via the podcasting world and whatever, which is so weird to say because are we mad <laughs> about podcasting world? Welcome Hannah to the podcast, who is the host of the Han Jan Ran show. We spoke with Hannah. We had an amazing conversation. I feel like there's been lots of alignment in terms of the topics that we cover on the pod. I think that we speak from different perspectives, but somehow there is so much alignment in kind of where we're at and what we say and our views. And I've I've found that really refreshing listening to your pod and engaging with you through this. So yeah, welcome, Hannah. (laughs) Thanks, guys. so flattered to be on the echo chamber i'm an avid listener you're so right like we do come from totally different backgrounds and perspectives in a way but the topics i guess because we're both we're all three of us are talking from the heart there is a huge overlap i've been learning from your your guys show and i'm really excited to talk to you today thank you and thank you so much for coming on to talk about a topic like this as well so I was a little bit nervous about reaching out and broaching the topic of um, having a conversation about addiction this came from us listening to your podcast actually so I think that you you had said on a couple of occasions you'd mentioned like being sober it's something that we talk about quite often not necessarily being sober I don't know that we use that language but we do talk about addiction and I think that that's related a lot to like maybe the journey that we're on in terms of like our spiritual practice, meditation and emptying our self of self and attempting to do that and how it is so connected or so linked to like propensity to to fill oneself with stuff that leads to addiction. So we thought we would have that conversation with you and as as said, we're aligned in so many ways as people. So we just thought we'd definitely be on the same page. Right, opening question today is, can you think of or do you have a soft addiction? And by soft addiction, just to caveat for the listeners, because obviously we've spoken before, when we think of hard addictions, think of things like drug, alcohol. Soft addictions are things that might even be postured as like positive things to be addicted to, or we might even be encouraged to swap our hard addiction to drugs or something like exercise or working out addiction well my understanding of addiction anyway it's escapism and it's an inability to be empty and to um sit with self there are so many that one can be addicted to what is a soft addiction of yours it's really interesting that you say about it kind of being a journey from your hard addiction to your soft addiction because as much as I feel like I have a really strong recovery from my hard addictions for me it can pop up in other ways like whack-a-mole you know there's there's other things that come out for me and I never used to have this before I did get sober but I do have like a lot of perfectionism now and I guess that for me is an attempt to have control yeah and it's it's something I still grapple with because it just feels so 
disconnected to how I used to view myself because I was so chaotic like I didn't there wasn't room for perfectionism um and now yeah I'm further down the journey of being recovered from my heart addictions that's kind of the way it comes out but then the one other that comes to mind is and I know this is going to sound really trivial but it's actually really real for me is chocolate and I think it's because I'm like okay I don't drink I don't do drugs I don't smoke anymore like I have to have something I need a vice you know so I really there are no limits with the chocolate <laughs> so yeah I really affectionism resonates with me a lot Hannah I wasn't I wouldn't have cited that um, and I've actually been pondering my soft addictions for like the last day running in the lead up to having this conversation but yeah so that resonates with me thinking is also an addiction of mine and working I didn't realize it at the time but basically an ex of mine sent me on holiday for a birthday and he couldn't really afford for the both of us to go so he sent me alone and that was my first ever solo trip in 2015. 2015 obviously wi-fi was a thing but unfortunately at the hotel um wi-fi was only available in the downstairs in the reception area so i didn't have wi-fi in my room i was by myself in portugal and i was forced to sit with myself and it was the most painful and unenjoyable holiday i had ever been on and i was just looking back retrospectively I'm really aware of like all of my little addictions and all of the things that I crave to do when I'm faced with sitting with myself and being like quiet. I think that work is definitely one of those things. And um, I feel almost empty if I'm not working, displaced. And I think also um, connection with people, which saying it now is a basic need actually as a human. So I don't know, those are the things that I would definitely say that I'm addicted to. What about you? Um, the perfectionism thing resonates, but mine manifests very oddly in that I just don't do anything then because I can't do it perfectly. So it's like, oh, I'm not going to do it because it's not going to be perfect. I don't think a lot of people would know or I don't think a lot of people would look at me and be like, oh, you're a perfectionist, necessarily. But I think that um, I see it come up, particularly in my writing, where I'm like, I'm just not going to do this thing because it's not going to be perfect. I would say my phone, my phone. I have a weird relationship with my phone in that I really hate my, I hate being on the phone or I hate being contacted. Actually, that's probably more accurate. I hate being contacted. I like contacting. <laughs> so I like to speak to people on my terms, on the platforms that I'm comfortable to speak to people on. I can get a text message and it will be in my phone for two weeks before I've replied really comfortably. But at the same time, I'm always on the phone. Like my phone's always in my hand when I'm in situations where I can't be on my phone. So even like I got, I had a wax done this morning, right? And I'm sitting there, my phone's in my bag and I'm thinking, who's messaging me? I'm just not comfortable. I'm not able to kind of sit without that constant communication, which I've noticed. And I hate that about myself or I hate that addiction or I hate that relationship to the blasted device. That's a, sorry, that's a good point. Maybe it's constant communication. That is, that is like a bit of a, an addiction for me rather than what I said, human connection. But yeah, yeah, so yeah. And my last one that I thought of is meat, man. I'm addicted to meat. I don't want to eat meat. I don't like meat, but I just eat meat. <laughs> I just... I can't stop and like even so I've hardly had any meat this week but I've had meat even though I don't want to eat meat mm. so I would definitely consider meat an addiction. They actually do put chemicals in there to keep you yeah. in it so 
yeah the phone thing I mean come on like I can't lie like it's the same for me <laughs> actually when I was on holiday last week and I left it in the house so that it didn't get too hot and I felt like Wonder Woman like I felt so incredible to be detached from it and it then became like this competition with myself like how many hours can I go without checking it how how many days can I stay off Instagram by the way it was two <laughs> um, it was really freeing just in the same way that it feels good to free yourself from other addictions so yeah I think that's so true and while you guys are talking another thing that came up for me is partly to do with the perfectionism but is this overachieving and I feel like all three of us have that a little bit just because it sounds like we all have really busy work lives and yet we've put ourselves out there doing this, doing our podcasts and it's no mean feat. Like it's a lot of work that goes into running a show like, like ours. And um, yeah, I think that's like our unwillingness to pause and just be like, we have to fill all our time. Sorry, I'm speaking on behalf of you, but, no, but you're right. You're very much right. And I think the phone one is, is mad. Like during lockdown, I would go for a walk every day with my mum and leave my phone at home and I was just aware of like number one how present I was when my phone was at home with my mum but also how hard I had to work to be present so it wasn't like oh my phone's at home this is normal this is calm I'm going for an hour's walk with my mum it was like be present listen to her ask her questions and they like, okay, so what do I normally do when I'm engaging with her? If this is like how much thought is going into just simply walking in a very nice park. And I learned so much about her, like me and my mum are very close. I still learned so much just by like giving her an hour without my phone. So it's, it's just interesting. So in terms of like your journey, Hannah, and I know you've mentioned on your podcast quite a few times your journey with addiction. Would you like to share a little bit about your story and kind of what this topic represents for you? Yeah, sure. I'll try and keep it the abridged version because <laughs> it's basically my whole life. So I guess while I was at high school, there was a really big sense for me of lack of control. And that started happening for me at home. So I'm like a huge family girl. I've got three siblings, grew up with my parents together and I was just really relied on that space to be my safe space. And when I was about 12, it kind of got much more turbulent at home, really. Like there was a lot of fighting happening at home. It did actually really hurt me and it made me feel really unstable. And so I started seeking control in my own life. And to begin with, that was with food because I was so young like I guess that was the only thing I had I had my like first sort of naughty night out at like 13 and it was just on like I didn't I just hit the ground running it was like excess it was being sick you know blackout from day one and honestly like as much as my head hurt the next day I thought that was wicked I actually was really seeking and this this stayed true for throughout my whole drinking and using career I loved that feeling of being out of control and like this recklessness like to me when I was using alcohol or drugs like it was kind of me like putting my middle finger up to the world like I just was so angry inside for everything that was happening around me it was this yeah desire to be reckless yeah pretty much like you know alcohol 13 weed 14 harder stuff by 15 
and like drugs I wasn't using all the time when I was that age it kind of got more intense from 18 even though drugs like by the end I was using like twice a week I don't really count that as like my primary issue because I would never use drugs without drinking for me alcohol has been the the thing that I've had to really deal with from the source I guess what that looked like in adult life I mean I come from a an environment where drinking with dinner is like completely normal like having a, a glass of wine at five o'clock is like you know it's kind of how we con congregated as a family around the table with a bottle of crisps and a bottle of white I kind of got away with it for a long time but I would black out every single time I drank and by the time I was coming to the end of my drinking journey I was losing I could lose like six seven hours and I was living in Sydney at the time without my family and to be a young woman in a city alone losing seven hours is really terrifying I wouldn't have admit that I was worried or scared by that at the time I honestly just every day just like pick myself up and continue I didn't allow the space for any admitting of pain because if I did that would be just like a tsunami and I wouldn't be able to put one foot in front of the other so I just blocked it all out and um would continue but yeah some pretty scary stuff happened you know I was waking up and places I didn't know the name of like well I remember walking out of a house and like seeing the ocean and being like okay so I must be in the eastern suburbs and then like using google maps to figure out what postcode I was in type thing and that was like at 7am when I'd work at nine so there was all that kind of you know the drama but what was happening for me internally was when I so like just to give perspective when I was 19 my best guy friend Echo he said to me he told me something he'd done after the fact and he said I didn't want to tell you while I was going through it because your moral view of the world is so black and white like it's wrong or it's right and I just wasn't ready to hear it because he was doing something he didn't feel proud of and to, so I went from that to being 25 26 and I had crossed every line in my moral code going and then some I was making new lines new lines and I was crossing them and it got to the point where I was using the shower as like a space of like baptism I was having to cleanse sort of all of these crappy things these bad decisions I was doing in the shower and then I couldn't even really look in the mirror because it was just so painful to acknowledge like how I was behaving I would walk to work always hung over if not on a come down and I remember like the same stretch of pavement each day by the time I was at that bit thinking I'm gonna have to call home and ask to go to rehab soon like I'm gonna have to put my hand up and ask for help I'd never met anyone that had been to rehab I'd never met anyone that had outwardly dealt with addiction so to me it kind of felt like this really far-fetched like extreme thing to say almost a bit dramatic like just over the top and like hypochondriac kind of reaction and I felt like my family would just be like what are you what are you talking about like you're fine so I didn't say anything and then I came back to London for my dad's 60th I was just a friggin mess like it was it was not cute it was not cute and my brother said to me my brother who's like a big drinker himself <laughs> said to me on my last night he was like, can you just slow down a bit? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm getting worried about you. And I was like, fuck you. Who do you think you are to say to me? Like, look at your own life. You know, 
you should deal with your own shit before coming and looking at mine. And I was just like swearing. We were in a bar. I'm just like swearing and da da. And our dad's around the corner. And I go sit down with him and I'm like bitching about my brother. Like how, like he's so out of order, da da da. But the night before, I'd had like a big drinks get together and my brother had come back from France. So he'd been with his girlfriend. And I said, I rang him the next morning, was like, it's such a shame you couldn't make it. And he was like, I was with you all night. You didn't leave my side. You were like obsessed with me all night like boasting to your friends like my brother's here and it was I was I was really embarrassed that I had blacked out so much that I couldn't even remember his presence so I went back to Oz and honestly it just got worse 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 it was bad for a few months like like the wheels were off I tried to not drink for a week and I got blackout drunk three times in that week I was really proud of myself because I didn't go out on a Saturday night and then on Sunday I rang my friends and was like let's go for a nice walk along the coast da, da, da. but it was winter in Australia and it was like a horrible day out and no one would go with me and then one friend said I won't go for a walk with you but I'll go to the pub and I was like yeah fine but I'm not drinking anyway started drinking at three o'clock at eight o'clock she was like we need to go home we both got work in the morning and I was like nope because for me once I start I can't stop like how you feel with a bag of chips is how I feel with alcohol sorry crisps English <laughs> call them chips in Australia and then I started bringing around friends that didn't have a Monday to Friday job found my friend who's a DJ he'd just been out um at like a day festival so he was happy to continue and one thing led to another I was going home like at midnight it wasn't like the worst thing um but I really 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 pissed off my housemates I was like carrying a sofa bed I'd found on the street into our house because I wanted to set, up, set it up on the balcony and I was like I'm gonna make this like Pinterest <laughs> I'm gonna learn from Pinterest and make this like amazing outdoor couch and then everyone can come back to ours after a night out and we can like lie under the stars and this is gonna be like the best the best thing ever for all my friends like we're just gonna have the best summer and she came out of her our housemates came out of her room with me like this stranger that we'd found on the street to help us carry it with the bed in the air, like <laughs> over my bed, the sofa over my bed. And she was just like, what the fuck are you doing? Like get that disgusting thing out of the house. And look, it's kind of funny. It's kind of like, it's not the worst thing. And it wasn't the worst thing that I'd done by any stretch of the imagination. But for some reason that night was the straw that broke the camel's back. And when, once all the, we, you know, we got rid of the sofa, whatever, once all the commotion had died down and I was just alone in my room. I lost it. I just lost it. I was sobbing and I just kind of cried out to the universe for help. I was like, I cannot do this anymore. Yeah, the next day I started my journey of recovery. It was kind of it was kind of crazy. I went to work the next day like super hungover and regretful, full of shame, and was reading the newspaper, which is something I had to do for work, not voluntarily. <laughs> and I read an article with someone in the public eye who was crediting their success to their recovery from alcohol and drugs. And it was, to me, I now view it as like my higher power or my God sending me that message. And I read it and I started Googling recovery and I started that day, I reached out to, to like a recovery program and, and got help from that day. So that was how I, my addiction kind of got me to the point which was like four and a bit years ago. And just a caveat, I did use drugs a few times after that. So I had to restart my count. I haven't had alcohol since that day, but I was thinking like I could get away with using drugs because alcohol was my primary addiction. But then I was taught in my, in my recovery program that 
it's any mind altering substance that isn't prescribed by a doctor and that it's a program of honesty. So after keeping it hush hush for a while, I was like honest and restarted my account. So my, I just had my four year anniversary in October and yeah, that's the addiction journey. Wow. I think there are so many things in what you've just said. I think that I'm really grateful for you sharing that with us and with our listeners because, um, and it's really brave because it, it's not, I feel, I feel like when people have, well, I'll speak for myself in the past when I've had conversations with myself about addiction, I've thought about the crackhead on the corner or like some extreme kind of like heroin user that, or just like extreme cases basically. And I think Jade and I have definitely spoken in the time that we've been friends about our relationship to substances, alcohol, the ways that actually I can speak for myself. I have most, I can relate to like those unhealthy patterns and one day leads into two days and two days leads into three weeks. And then before you know it, you're in a kind of spiral with this relationship to these substances. And it's something that I've had to get real honest with myself about. And it's it's a scary thing to look at because the connotations of a quote unquote addict or like the connotations are so extreme, I think. And I don't want to place myself in that category. I'm like, I want to, I want some distance between me and an, a quote unquote addict. But at the same time, I'm very aware that there are unhealthy patterns in terms of my relationship with substance. So hearing you like be brave enough to say that that moment that like you, like you noted wasn't even like, I don't know, you didn't, you weren't violent. You wasn't like a kind of like a quote unquote extreme incident, um, but just being able to look yourself in the mirror, be honest with yourself and say enough, this is enough. And I think that's a really brave thing to do. Thank you. I found it really interesting when you went back and you talked about your teen years or even pre-teen years and um, the feelings that you felt and um, how that was that a really relevant backdrop to how things were going forward in terms of your addictions. And that's definitely work that I haven't done. I don't think I've done. So I don't think I understand or get why I have addictions, why I have complex relationships with things. As S was rightly saying, alcohol is one thing that I have a complex relationship with, an unhealthy relationship with. But I think for me, the quote unquote maybe straw that broke the camel's back was I'm at the end of a relationship where I realized that I was really addicted to the high and low in that very unhealthy um, and abusive relationship when you cited feeling out of control and also sort of like your moral compass, shifting your moral compass, um, going along with this thing to keep it in, in your life, essentially, that really resonated with me because that it was a process, right? The near, near five years, it was just constantly redefining my morals in order to keep this thing around wasn't good for me. For me, I've always looked at my parents. So in, instead of looking at my own childhood and really looking at things, I've looked at my parents who are both addicts and I've seen how throughout their life, their addictions have changed constantly. When I was very young, they were both addicted to drugs and alcohol. 
um, well, I don't know about alcohol with my dad when I was younger, but um, hard drugs, definitely. And I've just seen how, particularly my mum, because I don't really have a relationship with my dad, but my mum's addictions have moved into like loads of soft addictions. And these are things that she chronically does um, in a really unhealthy way every single day, that none of these things are, would necessarily be cited as harmful. But I can clearly see how it's gone from alcohol and drugs to like the television, coffee, cigarettes, mm. dairy products that don't agree with her. Um, but she cannot stop using these things every single day to escape something, escape herself, I think, um, in terms of my understanding of addiction. I think that as much as I can feel really hard done by and angry um, in terms of like the parents that I chose, it's important for me to see so I have a different trajectory because I'm in my late 20s and I see these things. These people don't see them. They're in their 50s and 60s. They, they don't get it. They don't understand. They're still a victim to, to these things that have them and I'm able to learn from them watching them. I also think there's something really interesting about, so when I think about my relationship to drugs and alcohol, it's interesting saying, even speaking about it on this platform because I think that there are public perceptions or there are ways in which the world engages. But I think drugs, particularly more than alcohol, are things that most people that I know either do or have done in corners, in back rooms. And then we go to work with other people that are doing different types of drugs in their corners, in their back rooms, and pretend that we don't do them. And it is socially, there is there are kind of connotations to drug use but I know particularly from the communities that I've interacted with people take drugs in it <laughs> people take drugs and I, I also think they were like so I think being black and working class I find it really interesting because like cannabis for example um from my perspective and my trajectory that was a very kind of acceptable drug um, but you talk about anything else and you're you're mad, you're moving mad. Like, that, like, I don't know people from my world that were necessarily, openly anyway, engaging with that's a harder drugs. I think that's our generation, though. Because mm. when I look at, like, my dad, black working class, they were all using cocaine and mm. things like that. It's um, interesting how you talked about the like separation between your own identity and the sort of stereotype that that we conjure in our mind when we think of an addict and I think there's two ways that that plays out in a damaging way one there's a huge stigma so if someone is putting their hand up for help you guys complimented on what I said as being brave and you know I appreciate that but it is brave for anyone to say hey I've got a problem and I can't fix it by myself um, and I think there's a real barrier to that if we look at addiction as this, you know, homeless person on a park bench. Yes, it includes that, but it's also way bigger than that. And then secondly, it stops us from thinking that we fall into that bracket. Like if the only awareness we have of addiction is you know, maybe someone that we walk past on the street or even just who we see on TV or in the films, there's a real disconnect. Like that can't be me because I'm not on the street. I'm not, I don't know, whatever. 
But what I've learned in recovery is that those are simply yets. I haven't been kicked out yet. And for me, I actually had ticked a lot of those yets, but they just looked different. They were wrapped up in a different parcel. Like I have been, I was fortunate to be born into um, kind of a middle-class environment that for me, for me and my family, that hasn't stayed the same. Like that's a whole nother episode because of then how I present in the world, how I'm received. It's like you, people assume that those things haven't happened, but I was kicked out of where I lived. I was very, very nearly fired. I have had issues with the law over my substance use. These things that we associate with the stereotype, like can stop us from, yeah, having a true connection with it. And also, you know, my brother said something interesting recently. I was talking about, I haven't done it in London, but in Australia, I would go to like detox clinics and talk to other people that are sort of at the start of their recovery journey. Um, My brother was like, you know, for someone that's, and he's kind of painted the picture of what we were talking about, that stereotype. He was like, how do they connect with you? And something that I learned, actually, it was on my one year sobriety birthday, this dude who'd been sober for like, let's say 50 years. And he said something so profound and it's really stuck with me. It's not where we drank. It's not who we drank with. It's not even what we drank. It's why we drank. And it is that hole in the soul. And that can play out in so many different ways. Like it could be TV. It could be not eating. It could be overeating. It could be alcohol. It could be drugs. But it is, as you guys cited at the beginning of the episode, like it is that inability to sit with ourselves. And I have had enough shit served to me that I can blame circumstance and I did for a really long time like if you'd been through what I've been through you would drink how I drink and that was kind of my mantra but what I've learned is actually I've met people that have had the perfect childhoods I've met people that have had everything served to them on a silver platter shit excluded (laughs) um and they've ended up in the same rooms same road of recovery as me and basically addiction doesn't discriminate and it isn't it's it's something internal it's not an external thing it's not because you know my mom and dad broke up it's not because my boyfriend cheated on me it's not because xyz it's because there's just something innate in me and the only way like the best way I can describe it is a hole in the soul and now I think this is probably one of the things that us three connect over the most is this pursuit of like sort of spiritual healing and that is for me the way that I've I've managed to move out of that desperate need to fill the hole in the soul because I found a much more positive way and and built a relationship with myself where I don't have to live in a state of denial over who I am and what I'm doing I can say today at four years sober that I know who I am as a woman and I like who I am and for me that's been like the biggest struggle but also the achievement I'm the most proud of out of everything think when I came to understand that like the unhealthiness in this relationship that I had with this man was symptomatic of like being addicted to the high and the low I became really interested in like this concept of addiction and being addicted to things and I remember listening to something and similar to what you were saying about like the hole in the soul this man was talking about our perceptions of the past 
and the capacity to shift our understanding of what has happened to us. Basically, my perception of what has happened to me in my life has caused that hole in the soul, has caused the brokenness of spirit. And I think that my friendship with Ez and also my journey with therapy has been a process of redefining or like shifting my perception of the things that have happened to me. And sometimes understanding my agency and power in things, which sometimes isn't a, doesn't feel kind. So it doesn't necessarily feel kind for me to like think back to a situation where I've been violated by someone that was bigger than me, stronger than me, whatever, and look for where my power and my agency was in that interaction. That doesn't feel kind and it doesn't feel true to the, to the average person but it's been so foundational and important in changing my perception of the things that have happened to me and maybe rebuilding my spirit. When you were speaking, Hannah, I was thinking, so I used to do some work with a homeless charity. Someone that's like a sister to me used to run an annual programme called Love in the Box. We'd go to this homeless charity We'd, with boxes filled with like toiletries, socks, sweets, whatever, and spend a few hours, we'd sing carols, and this happened. So I, for five or six years of like my life, I was doing this, um, this initiative. It was mind blowing. So there was a few of the residents in the homeless shelter that we'd built a relationship with. So over the years, they knew we would come over Christmas. Um, there was a guy called Patrick Howe, and Patrick was my G. I don't know how to describe Patrick, but a bloody G. Patrick was in his late 60s. He was homeless. He was the typical drunk. Yeah, he looked homeless. He smelled homeless. He was constantly drunk. So I'd come into the homeless shelter and it wasn't... So when we first started working with them, they weren't actually a dry shelter. So you could have alcohol in the in the home, but just not in the communal spaces. Um, and so he, I'd come in and I just connected with Patrick. So at, like, I was about to heart my life. I'm going to not do that. And I'm going to segue past what I was about to say. For a specific reason, I had a special connection to this man. For two reasons. And one of them being that he shared a birthday with my brother. Really connected with Patrick, older Irish man. He was dropping some wisdom to me. The first ever time we met, he was saying things like, me and you were not too different, you know? And just saying things that like, were just very, that just were hitting my spirit, were very profound, right? And one of the times, one of the years I went to visit him, we were talking and I was like, Patrick, what's your story? And we like, our relationship prior to that was very jokey. Sometimes I'd phone him like, he'd always try and get me to bring in what he described as holy water in the form of Strongbow. So he'd always be like, have you got my holy water today? And I wouldn't bring him alcohol, but I'd bring him other things. We'd have, we'd have a laugh. We'd have a really good laugh. And then one day we were sat in his room and I was like, Patrick, like, how did you end up here? That was the first time I saw Patrick sober. Like, and he wasn't physically, there was alcohol in the system, but he, he stopped to speak to me and to explain to me his story. And it wasn't anything deep on that major, really. He was a construction worker, came over from Ireland and just liked to drink, chose drink over his family, chose drink over his home, chose drink over a lot of things. In my journey with Patrick, I think I learned a lot. Um, rest his soul, he's passed away now. But in my journey with Patrick, I think I learned how similar we were. And how, like, if I saw him on the street and if you saw him on, like, if anyone saw him on the street, people wouldn't necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily look at that man and say there's any similarities between us. But 
there were so many things that we had in common, one of them being our desire to make people happy, one of them being the fact that we pull into spaces publicly, but then in our quiet time, it's us and our demons. And there were just so many kind of parallels that I, I drew from that experience. Um, and I'll never, like, it's changed how I view. So, like, even things like human touch, Patrick wasn't, in terms of, like, his hygiene and things like that. Um, but I would I would hug Patrick because you're a human being. Yeah, like, you do need a wash. Um, and, yeah, there are those, but, like, you're a human being and it, it doesn't kill me to hold your hand, even though your hands aren't necessarily... The way I would perceive you if I didn't know you, if I didn't have the relationship that I do with you, I would forget that you're a human being because I would see your addiction before I see you. And that was really helpful for me. The other thing is, so similar on this journey, one of the years we did a sleep out. So we slept outside for 24 hours to raise money for the Love in the Box. And during this sleep out, we found ourselves on the Strand, right? And we were on the Strand and there's a big homeless community there. And it, without taking like without going into too much detail, that night I saw things that I had never seen before. So it, what was interesting is that it was on the Strand. So like, if I'm not, like people were out on nights out and just the way they treat homeless people, the way you, they spoke to or dismissed or just like, and it was two separate worlds. And it was one that I, for someone that comes from or considered myself to come from a quote-unquote underprivileged community, like, I saw that actually, like, there were so many pockets of society that I've just got no idea. And I think one of the things that I saw on the, that night was that they were drinking. But for the first time, I got it. I got it. Because you're on the street and it's freezing and people are spitting at you or being disrespectful to you or police are harassing you and moving you along to nowhere and there is nothing there is what can one do in that situation and so I, I for the first time I understood on a deeper level the way that that version of escapism that very accessible version of escapism made sense in that context and it just shifted the way that I view addiction the way that I view even like the stereotypical looking addict because that person's got a story, that person comes from somewhere. One of the people in the homeless shelter was a professor at LSE for eight years before he found himself there. Um, and it just made me think. There's a very, you know, we're all kind of treading this tightrope, like it could be us. And this isn't part of my addiction story, but I got really, really sick after I got sober. And um, I one day just couldn't work anymore. And my my boss was incredible you know she, in Australia you accrue your annual leave but she paid out my annual leave for the year she gave me like $500 extra but like I couldn't work so I had no income and I lived in a house that I paid rent for on the basis of that income and then suddenly I was on sick benefit and you have to be have been ill for six months to get the sick benefit so I was like surviving just um and then I wasn't and eventually I got the sick pay but it was l exactly the same amount as my rent so if I was gonna have food I was having to forego my rent I spoke to my landlord I said can I end my contract because this situation has arisen you know I'm unable to work and they said yeah you can but you have to pay four weeks rent to break the contract and I was like do you hear me? I don't have the money. And it was 
for the good fortune that other people kind of swooped in and saved the day. And then as I got better, I started working freelance, but I had to take money under the table because if I had employment, which I could only work like, let's say in total, like one and a half to two days a week. If I had that, then I would lose my benefits. And, you know, suddenly I'm someone that's cheating the system. But if I didn't, where would I have been? If I didn't have people and do you know what, if I hadn't gotten sober and I had continued to burn the bridges at the rate that I was burning them, like people may not have been so quick to help me. In fact, I know for a fact my work would not have been as generous. They were because when I was still using, they were at their wits end with me. I was like this chick that came in with bloodshot eyes. I smelled like an ashtray. Like my boss didn't talk to me for the first six months I worked there. She just thought I was like like who is this chick from London like coming with tattoos and friggin stinks like cigarettes every day we built an incredible relationship once I got sober but had I gotten ill when I was still drinking to that level I think people would have assumed it was all like my fault it's like sliding doors and you're so right like everyone has a story yeah it's very humbling to think about that and it in my recovery journey like to the place I went to that night that Monday night when I went to um when I, the day after I stopped drank, drinking ended up being somewhere I went every single week for the rest of the time I lived in Oz and it was a it was a room in a homeless shelter for men and the guys I was I was often the only girl that went on this Monday night maybe sometimes there was two three of us max so there was like 15 dudes and there was a rehab down the road um, so all the guys have come up and from every walk of life, but like generally like saying this in a loving way, but pretty rough guys. And they became like this crew of like 15 sort of burly big brothers that would, I know they would have friggin' killed for me. <laughs> they like, they became so protective of me. They loved me so much. And we were all on this same journey, you know, there was, we were all struggling with our early recovery. And so we had this connection that was way stronger than I had with, at the time, than like with my friends back home. Um, so yeah, it's very, it's very humbling to consider the roots that it can take us down for everyone. Your, the means to recovery was the 12 step program. I, I've had a little bit of contact with the 12 step program. I just sort of was, I went through, I think up to step five. Um, and I did some exercises connected to each step up to step five. Um, and I endeavored to, to go through it at some point in my life because of like, I don't know, I guess the awareness of like the soft addictions basically and my tendency to, to addiction have you gone through all 12 steps yeah I have took me a year and like people do them at different rates that the very very old school way is to just whiz through them um like in 30 or like 90 days um do you know what? it's so funny that's so interesting that you said you're up to step five because when you were talking about your past relationship and taking responsibility I was like that's step four <laughs> and um it's something that is really hard to face and I've had situations as well and it's similarly it's being in physical environments right being on the receiving end of physical behavior and 
you know, as a more vulnerable person, either being a woman or being a child, um, it's very hard to say that you had a role to play in that. I have a mentor in my recovery and she beautifully and gently showed me my part. And that was simply that after it happened once, I could have told someone and I didn't. And look, that's not, that doesn't make me to blame. That doesn't make me bad. That doesn't, you know, doesn't warrant any shame, but it's just those, those small lessons. So now in the future, if any, if I was to end up in a situation, I have this, the knowledge to set those boundaries and to step away and to ask for help if I can't sort it myself. So yeah, in terms of the steps, they've changed my life. They've, they are what has introduced me to me. I just, yeah, I can't praise them enough. And they've taught me so many tools that apply, like my understanding of addiction, right? So let's use, I'll just talk about mine because it's my experience. Alcohol, using alcohol is a symptom of my addiction. It's not the beginning and the end. So once I put down a drink, that's not it done then I actually have to deal with the root cause. And that is the hole in the soul that we were talking about. So the steps are very comprehensive. To start with, it's talking about powerlessness and unmanageability, which for me, I didn't have any trouble with acknowledging because <laughs> my life was like completely out of control. It then takes you to seek a spiritual solution. Um, and I just really want to like caveat that, that that is not a religious solution. If you already have religion, then by all means, you know, you're welcome to use that in that way. But there are a lot of people that have a, a very difficult time with the term God, whether that's because they've been the recipient of homophobia because of what some people interpret from religious script, just maybe being from an extremist family, whatever it is. I would just want to really make sure that people know that that shouldn't be a barrier because this is the beauty of the steps is it gives you the autonomy to define your spirituality for yourself. And that's another huge gift because I feel like I was seeking that spiritual solution so desperately. Like I really tried to be a Christian. I really wanted to be a Christian, but the shoe just didn't fit for me. And then I was like going to Buddhist temple. Um, I was just, I was seeking it, you know? And then in the last few years when I was really bad with my addiction I'd given up I'd given up like it just wasn't working for me so being given that permission that space to define it for myself has been a game changer then it's kind of it's step four and five which is looking at your role to play so it's, it's looking at resentments and um they say resentments you know that's what keeps you sick and it's funny because we'll be so resentful at someone um, and I've seen this play out in other people's lives and it's been so educational. We'll be resentful at someone that isn't even thinking about us. They're having a nice time. They're just going on with their day. And they're not mad about this thing that happened 18 years ago, but you're sitting there stewing over it. Like that, it keeps you sick, not the other person. <laughs> so it's looking at your part to play to then free yourself of that resentment because you obtain, you know, that autonomy, that agency over this thing that you used to feel like a victim to you, you used to feel like it happened to you, but now you've got some power, I guess, in that scenario. Then it's looking at your character defects. So for me, if I feel some kind of way towards someone, I will go very cold. So like, I'll use my relationship with my mum as an example. 
we went through a really rough time. My parents had broken up. She was devastated. She was heartbroken. She was acting out. I was acting out. I was a hot, hot mess when I was living with her at that time. And she is the closest person to me on this planet. And I was taking it out on her. My way of handling that is to just go cold like an absolute ice queen. And I was abusive in how cold I was to her. Like she'd be talking to me and I would just be like a gargoyle, like just stone, like no reaction to her. And moving to Australia gave me that space. And through doing the 12 steps, I've I've learned that my mom is also a woman doing her best in this world. And through building my relationship back with myself, I've been able to build my relationship back with my mom. And now she is literally my favorite person on this planet. And we are so, so, so close in the way that we always knew we were capable of, capable of being, but my addiction, our circumstance, our destructive behavior got in the way of that. So another huge gift I've gotten from the steps. Also then it takes you on to making amends. So I was able to apologize for my behavior and thankfully it was well received. I even apologized to my ex-boyfriend who cheated on me. <laughs> he was like, why are you apologizing to me? And the truth is, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't perfect in that relationship. You know, I didn't do the big bad thing that broke it, but I was a handful. So I had my part to play. And then really the last three steps are about spiritual maintenance and passing it on. So it's not like you go in, you get better and you're done. It's you go in, you get better and then you help other people to get better. They say that the opposite of addiction is connection and passing it forward and being the recipient of people passing it forward gives the most beautiful connection you could ever wish for and also if I'm ever feeling hard done by on this earth for me now the tool that I fall back to the quickest is to be of service to someone else if you call someone and just simply say how are you you suddenly realize you're not the only person with struggles you're not the only person hurting and it relieves some of that self-obsession that pain that feels so destructive um, and also then to just like do a good deed, you know, like Phoebe says on Friends, there's no such thing as a selfless good deed. You do something good for someone else, you feel good. So yeah, there's a lot of tools it sneakily teaches you, but they're things that as addicts, we never learned because we just fell to our addiction too quick to learn how to cope on this planet. So yeah, kind of like takes you back to age 13 when I picked up alcohol and, and taught me all those lessons and how to adult. <laughs> As you're speaking, I feel really raw and really aware of myself and it is bringing up a lot for me and just how far away I am from being able to face myself in the ways that you seem to be. Yeah. Last year I wrote I write notes on my phone and I wrote to cannabis and I wrote about the way that cannabis has been my longest standing friend the most reliable thing in my life the most reliable relationship that I have and I don't know sometimes if it's a friend or foe mm. and I don't know if I want to leave it like, and it's, it's a mind fuck because it's like, I'm hearing you speak. I think that my relationship, apart from alcohol, any relationship with substance I have is generally therapeutic. 
Mm-hmm. So alcohol, I'm, like in my head, I'm like, I need to let that go one day, right? I know, I know that that needs to go one day. I know that it doesn't enhance my life in any way, shape, or form. Um, but I'm listening to you speak, and I'm like, you can reach these places as without an induced experience you can look at yourself you can if in you if in you so anything that like any substance brings out of you is in you um and you can reach that place without help basically but I know within myself that I'm very far from that place I think I also have questions about drugs that enhance consciousness and spirituality and I, I guess I'm I'm just figuring stuff out for myself. But I, the thing as you're speaking, and I think what's making me feel so raw is my awareness of just not being there. I'm not there yet. Um, that's a tough pill to swallow. As someone that kind of seeks and strives to live in a place of truth and to look at myself, that's a difficult thing to com- to have to confront. And I don't know if I will confront it, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to note it. And I'm grateful for this conversation because I'm definitely going to note that that's that's a conversation that I need to continue with myself so thank you I don't want to talk too much I want to hear what you guys have to say as well but what I just want to respond to there is that there is no end goal when you're saying I'm not there yet there is no place that is there it is a constant journey and it like yeah it may be easy for me now to not pick up alcohol but like I always am having to check in my character defects, my bad behavior can come up in other ways. Like it's all, it's a journey. It's a journey. I think for me, it is the line between um, this addiction to perfectionism and actually truly doing the work that's really difficult for me. So I think I'm really good at like having this objective of like being or becoming a perfect person or my perception of a perfect person. But the 12-step program for me definitely was like, I was just very aware of my own tendencies and I can't use the 12-step program to continue to feed into my bullshit, basically. And similar to what Ez is saying, it's like, there's a place that I still need to get to before I can engage with it genuinely and really start doing the work from a genuine place, basically that kind of brings up another really great point about our individual journeys which is it has to come from within like I think there's a picture painted you know when the addiction is really obvious from an outside perspective that everyone's going to be like come on come on like you need to get better you need to stop with that addiction and that may be true like I have a situation with a member of my family who's two actually (laughs) who've been in and out of hospital they're in their 50s and they've been in and out of hospital because their organs are about to give up because all they do is drink and we me and my mom have done everything for these guys for my uncles to make the step into recovery as easy and as seamless as possible but it's it's got to come from them they have to want it And so, you know, when you talk about being ready, like that, well, I hope it comes for you, but like it it has to be really true to want to go through these processes because at the time they they are painful. My first year of recovery was hell. Like I was crying 
so, so much. Um, and, you know, I, I got anxiety for the first time. I never had anxiety before because I was never feeling enough. Like I was always numbing my feelings. And then it's like I'm doing this amazing thing where I'm putting down alcohol and drugs and I'm like, shouldn't I feel phenomenal now? And suddenly I've got anxiety. I was like, what is this? Like, I didn't sign up for this. Um, but yeah, the, I guess the rewards to reap from the other side of it are so magnificent that and I always say this when I share about my experience is that my imagination is not big enough. My imagination is not colorful enough to have even conjured up a picture of all of the beautiful things that have unfolded since I got sober. And for me, like I do have a relationship with God today and I'm just like, the things that God's delivered for me are just so magnificent that I cannot stop going down this path. And they're not things like, I don't have a Ferrari parked outside, but they're things like the first night that I didn't drink, I started painting and I fell in love with painting. And then when I got sick, that felt like the worst thing in the world. And I was like, you know, bargaining with God, like, dude, I just did this great thing. I got sober and now you're giving me this illness, which means I can't walk, like what the fuck? Um, this doesn't feel like a fair exchange, but on the other side of being ill, I, as I said, I went into freelance working through working freelance, I earned more money working three days a week than I was earning before working five days a week. So I got more financial stability, which I never had when I was using. And then with the other days I had spare, I started doing a master's in fine art. And that, like that filled my hole in the soul for a while. That was amazing. And it was something that I dreamed of, but never even said out loud because I thought I can never do that. I can never go back to school. Like I have to fend for myself like if I am not paying my rent no one's gonna pay it for me and that was my other thing about rehab I was like who like where's my stuff gonna go like I you know yeah the beautiful things keep on presenting themselves and I guess the the illness thing with then doing art that taught me and it took a few more times of you know God teaching me this lesson for me to really take note but through every really hard and difficult and painful experience to me on the other side of that is the opportunity for the biggest growth and the most beautiful, almost reward on the other side. Um, so now whenever I'm going through something that really, really hurts, I know that this too shall pass. And on the other side is something really incredible. And yeah, it's been, that's been a really hard lesson to learn. I got, I got better from being ill and then I got ill again. And then I was like, nah, dude, like, I did not sign up for this. And I'll be honest, I never got to a point where I considered taking my life in addiction. That at that time I did because I was so sick. I couldn't, I was like collapsing, trying to walk to the bathroom. And I was just stuck in my bedroom. Like the sun was shining outside and I couldn't, felt like a prisoner. And um, I was like, I just didn't want to live like that. So I had a date in my head where I was like, if I haven't got better by this point, I don't want to go on. And um, yeah, by that day I was at the beach and from the other side of that, my from me being ill, my parents had put their swords down to one another because they had the perspective of like, our child is ill 
And so they started meeting up to discuss what to do with me. Like my dad wanted to force me to come back to London. My mom was defending me saying, no, like if we force her, she's going to be so mad. Like we don't want to do that. We want her to get better in Sydney. Um, but through those conversations, they reconnected. And by the time I got better, they had gotten back together. <laughs> so they were divorced for five years and they got back together. And that was like another dream that I would never had had the courage to tell anyone because it sounded so crazy like parent trap yeah, and yeah. <laughs> happens so yeah that is so beautiful I love so much of what you said because I think that um the space that I'm in at the moment in my life away from this conversation but just more generally is just sort of honing in on how God will carry you like God's is carrying you, will carry you, has carried you. And there is, there's so much at the end of like putting all of your trust in him, Jade. I'm so controlling and just so mad. Like as you were talking, I was just thinking, Jade, you're so, not like, I'm not comparing myself to you, Hannah, but I was just like, Jade, you're so mad because you, the 12 step, the thing that's getting in the way of you being able to really immerse yourself in a 12 step program, for example, is yourself and your capacity to be so madly manipulative, like, <laughs> and use it to now become this perfect person. And that's not the end. It's just to immerse yourself in you, basically. Say all of that to reiterate that this conversation has been beautiful and the outcomes sound so beautiful. I am thinking about pain and I'm thinking about transferring pain and letting go of pain and recycling pain. And from what you're saying, I feel like there are like, looking at yourself basically and sitting with yourself. And I know this, but they're the only ways to really let go of the pain. Like you can recycle it, you can use it for something positive, you can do stuff with it, or you can just put it down. And I feel like with God and with faith, so like the thing between, the thing that's in the way for me um, to make kind of certain steps, and I'm making lots of steps in some regard, but to make certain other steps is faith that like I will get through the other side of pain, that like I'll walk through that painful place, get through it and be able to put it down. I don't trust that I'll make it, I'll make it through. So not that it won't happen and I know how God works, but it's like, I don't know if I'll survive it. And that, I think it's really encouraging hearing you speak because you, you're, you are surviving it. I don't even want to say you've survived it. It's not a thing that you survive, you, you're continually opening your arms to say all right cool what's next um and that's really encouraging to see so I'm grateful for this conversation mm. and we're really glad that we've had you on today yeah thank you thank you so much Anna. oh this is so gorgeous what a great way to start the day I'm yeah I'm so glad the podcasting world has connected us I feel like I feel a really strong connection with you both and um yeah, I'm really privileged to be on the Echo Chamber. Oh, we have to pick up Kieran because I feel like we've been giving it to the podcasting world, but actually via <laughs> Kieran Papa, who was a previous guest. Yeah, you got a shout. On both, on both <laughs> podcasts. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Mama. Thanks, Thanks for listening, guys. Like what the fuck I'm a day? Work ain't paid me in time. 
my bed, just rip in my bed. I tell you, just call for my life.